wanted to open I normally open with of what are the shapes patterns patterning <laughs> forms but I wanted to bring attention to the move archetypal move versus thing so I'm asking that question this morning or this afternoon or wherever you're listening what are the moves moving you what are the moves you're making in an archetype of them? Okay, hopefully that felt like a nice little mood starter and to start thinking of that question of moves. And so, as I said, we like to often think about archetypes, certain forms and shapes, patterns, and often a lot of archetypes we've come up with, they're kind of like the things, right? Archetypal things. And so I thought it might be fun to look at from a slightly different angle and still always thinking about the present moment and what's alive for you right now, what's in your field, what sort of 
playing in your psychic playgrounds. Um, but a little bit of a slight shift. And instead of thinking of archetypal things, thinking about archetypal moves, moves. And so like, it's a little strange to say, but like, as an example, for instance, um, like there's sort of the archetypal bridge or the archetypal bridge builder, but there's also archetypal bridging the move. There's a move you're bridging, right? So same thing, like we've used, I think we've even talked about some of these sort of the archetype of the weaver or the fabric, but then there's the archetype of the move that is weaving. Another one is the clown and the audience that the clown is sort of entertaining. But then there's this move outside of the archetype of clown, which is the move of clowning or playing the clown. So I thought it might be fun. Those, by the way, those are all things that I feel like have been in my field, especially bridging and weaving. I, I've, I've been in the field, especially here at the broom, but also clown, which is funny because I've seen other people talking about it. That feels like another one of those things. So those are three from that have been kind of in my field. Um, and part of this question, that I'm, I want to ask, and please feel free to come off of mute or share in the chat. But I was reading this article, which is also um, available in, in the Discord server for those that are, are um, a member of that. And there's this quote in here. It's, it's calling about the holistic view of the cell. And I'm just going to put a quote. For instance, proteins behave more like liquids than solids. They wiggle around and adopt dozens of hundreds dozens to hundreds of subtly distinct shapes inside of cells. And yet our perception of proteins can be skewed based on the static image images we produce of them. So it says here, proteins behave more like liquids and solids. They wiggle around and adopt dozens to hundreds of subtly distinct shapes inside of cells. And this is all based on what's sort of required or what might be the, what that situation, which was the name of the song we were listening to, might sort of require for that move to happening. And uh, I think archetypes are very similar. So I was just wondering if the group or anyone that's joining us, and I can share, but I'd love to not be the one speaking. If anyone wants to hop off a of mute or share in the text, any kind of moves that are coming up for you, sort of in an archetypal sense, things that you are noticing in terms of the way you're approaching, the way you move in the world, or the way you're moving through or processing something or integrating something. Um, it could be lots of things, a move that you're trying to make, right? And there might be an image that's attached to that move you're trying to make. So I'll take a second here to just see if anything's coming up for those that are joining us. Um, I, thought, I thought what you were talking about with the, with the clown was particularly interesting. Um, mm. Because uh, I have been doing some research lately, and I, I didn't know this, but um, there was, um, you know, medieval, like, jesters and, and shit like that. Um, they actually had a lot of ability to critique nobility and the actions of nobility that a lot of other people didn't have. Um, <laughs> so they had kind of, like, in their folly and in their, like, foolish demeanor they kind of had a lot of authority, right, that a lot of other people didn't have. Um, and I'm wondering, I'm wondering if that extends more into kind of the archetype of the clown, more generally speaking, you know, because of their sort of foolish demeanor and their foolish appearance, 
that they can kind of say things that other people can't um, because, you know, oh, they're just the gesture. They're just the clown. You know, we don't, nobody takes them seriously, right? At least on the surface. But then on a deeper level, they can kind of speak truths that other people can't um, because of that, that appearance. That was very interesting. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think there is. I mean, I'm curious what you think and what you think, Lexi. And for those joining, you know, what's bubbling up for you? But like, absolutely. Like, I think the clown, the jester, um, you know, these are also like adjacent to trickster a little bit. You know, I think these archetypes are can be exceptionally powerful, like you said, because they're entering a, like a different kind of mode um, that, that allows conversation and things to be said that otherwise couldn't be said like you said especially with this with the in the terms of like the royal family like i love this angle you're talking about where because they're part of the court and their court jester they have this ability to speak truths in a playful silly entertaining way that otherwise might not get through to the clown i mean get through to the king or queen right like that they might actually be supporting them in really meaningful ways by giving them like almost like instead of an advisor it's like the jokes are advising them on some of the follies potentially of what they're doing, or they can see themselves reflected in a new way when they're like being mocked by their jester. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, like I'm curious what, what you think about it. And and not not even so much that like they could advise them in sep- in different ways, but it was like to the extent where like, look, if anyone else said that, you're losing your damn head. You mm. know? Um it could be that overtly critical, um, you know, and nobody else really had that position. I was kind of looking into like court occultists and like stuff like that too. Mm-hmm. And, like apparently, uh, you know, according to the records that we have, even they couldn't speak, you know, that plainly and that bluntly um, towards the nobility. And jesters did lose their fucking heads, you know, every now and then. <laughs> so it did happen, right? <laughs> right, it did happen, but they had a lot more space to speak um, the truth. And I think when I look at this, I kind of, I kind of see it embodied in the fool as well. Um, In this folly, things are said that um, (laughs) might, might not uh, maybe shouldn't be said specifically in relation to like authority and that sort of thing. Um, But you know, somebody's needed to needed to say it for a long time, and you know, the yeah. fool just happens to be the person willing to do that. Yeah, and I mean, to go back to that early question, like, it's such a powerful move to kind of enter that role to play the fool a little bit, to play the jester, um, and to add some levity to a situation, or to maybe get some truth out there, but express it in a humorous or playful way that might allow more receptivity to the message. And yeah, that's a great move. And Lexi here, I see a comment. I feel like fast change in relation to movement has been in my field lately, like lots of reorientation to take more responsibility and be more honest about my limitations in certain areas. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. And I think not, not to like, I'm, I feel like there's a little bit of like a square peg in the round hole type of a situation. So forgive me, Lexi. But like, I do wonder like this thing we're talking about now where this like sort of playful move, this gesturing, this clownish move, does that feel like 
anything in that realm does that feel like a move that could be supportive to you in this in this space as you're as you're reorienting and maybe no but i'm just kind of wondering I'm, I'm trying to weave these two but they feel like i don't know <laughs> it's funny because like you wouldn't think of a clown when you think of taking more responsibility or honesty but sometimes there is something that can be said about finding a way to be humorous about it ah she says i feel yes in relation to some dismemberment yeah yeah how there's like okay maybe not in an outward expressed sort of way but there's a way where maybe this sort of clowning around kind of move that we're talking about archetypally could be powerful in your own like inner work your own in inner dismemberment where there's a little bit of playfulness or lightness that you're holding this process that you're doing within mm. Mm. yeah i'm curious like hmm, let me let me like hold a little more space to see how this is landing because i see lexi typing but i'm just thinking in the back of my mind how many times i have used some moves from the from the clowns toolkit <laughs> Ah, she says, taking my life force back in relation to attachment or preventing reattachment. Mm. And like, for some reason, the sort of archetype of um, the, the face paint and the clown or putting my nose on, like, have you guys seen that sort of meme online a lot where I've seen a lot with like Stan culture on, on the internet where like the stands of a particular whatever will get themselves like whipped up in a frenzy that like this new thing is going to be announced or something like that. Um, and then they like jokingly like have to wear their clown paint because, Oh, I, I, I was a clown. Like I, I was wrong about that. You know, it's a way to sort of like, I think they do it in a way to soften the sting of them getting so excited about something that did not come to fruition. He just liked me for real. Exactly. Like, Oh, we're just playing a clown. And, um, yeah, I think there's something about about that of like when we do get any situations where we accidentally attach or reattach or kind of fall into an old pattern to like not be dismissive and mean to ourselves, but sort of in a fun just just gesturing type of way, be like, here's your clown nose, sir. Here's your wig, ma'am. You know, like go ahead and put it on, put on the face pan. Here you are, you're back in the circus. You're back in the circus. And like playfully. Um, and again, that you can get that can get turned into bullying. You know, those those inner aspects can be bullying sometimes. But I feel like I feel like maybe the uh, the king or the queen of our ego might be able to stomach some of these really important refinement messages that we have for ourselves and our aspects with a little clowning around, with a little inner gesture, being like, "Let me deliver this message to ego," hopefully in a way that won't cause the whole nervous system to explode. Right to lose my head <laughs> i'm wondering if that's uh if that's landing for anyone or if anyone's ever employed that move in that way before i i think it's interesting what you you just touched on and like the metaphor of like the medieval court as the you know psyche um <laughs> where you know yeah a lot of the like sometimes that clown archetype can like be sort of like this bullying energy right but like at the same time i think that our inability to embrace that archetype 
and 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 the negative connotations that have been associated to it in the modern era just kind of de facto right um are what gives power to that bullying energy in the first place right where so as if we if we distance ourselves from this idea of the clown the fool the gesture etc as this inherently bad thing then we can engage in that self-criticism in um in a reflective and positive way um rather than sort of this de facto negative overly critical sort of way i i really appreciate that wow and you're right like this is so funny i was thinking about i like how you use the word metaphor too because one is like etymologically if i'm not mistaken we'll have to take it to the etymology thread um metaphor is like one of the terms i've seen of like what it means etymologically is like carry across like this thing that's like a vessel that gets you from one side of something to the other and like you're saying sometimes that we have to be careful with the metaphors we use because some there's so many correspondences with it and like you said with clown there are some really negative associations especially with like i'd say probably from like horror right like a lot of horror movies have used clowns in a very creepy way that has given it a very weird violent kind of rough edge according to, in some people's psychic landscape and then on like like movies like it you know what i mean and then also like has that weird i don't know if you guys are aware of this so maybe this is just in my my psychic landscape but like i know that there were a couple serial killers that were really obsessed with um with clowns and so like there's this weird violent sort of creepy part of it that you're right like it can it can sour what i think could be a really beautiful um archetypal move because of these other pieces and it's like it made me think of like that creepy uh, yeah that creepy dude from the sims exactly like there's so many examples there's so many examples of these clowns that can be quite frightening also um wow so i'm just thinking about that but you're right like i think that there if we're able to move past some of that this one offers something really unique potentially to support you and your and your um and your own sort of inner work and inner uh negotiations i feel like i also had seen that like this sort of archetype existing in like a lot of cultures where like i forget there's there was like specific terms like different um cultures have different words for the type of person who's always doing things differently right this sort of trickster this fool playing this type of person that, that's sort of like always uh subverting expectations or norms and how powerful that is because by doing so a there's this sort of built-in um uh mechanism within the collective to really push back against norms or to not become too no like hetero like a uh, homonormative i guess um or like because I, I wanted to have that term in my head but like become too too uniform uh, because there's someone on the outside that like doing things differently, pushing the envelope, and sometimes they might just come across something that really opens it. Oh, yeah, I would love to have you say more if you'd like, but I'd love because I know a little bit about it, and the stories of him are great. But yeah, you're mentioning here, shout out to Di Diogenesis. I think I mispronounced that, but I've <laughs> it's one of those names I don't say out loud very much. But yeah, if you want to come up here and talk more about him, because he is amazing as far as historical figures go wow
um, and a, a lot of it, a lot of it kind of comes back to that ability to speak the truths that nobody else can. Um, there are so many Diogenes stories, um, but I think one of the most illuminating in this respect is when Alexander uh, the Great, I believe it was, um, you know, um, approaches Diogenes on a beach, and you know he he. He, Alexander, oh my god, I've heard, you know, so much about you, and, you know, um, what, you know, what do, what do you want, you know, if, if I could give you anything, I'm the most powerful man in the world, what, can, what could I give you, and Diogenes looks up at Alexander the Great and says, could you move out of my son, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> he's casting a shadow over Diogenes, Diogenes is trying to enjoy the sun, you know, um, which is just a critique of, I mean, so many things like power relations and money and materialism. And, you know, Alexander could really scoop him up, you know, into any life that he wanted. And, and Diogenes rejects this sort of outright. Um, very, very fascinating. But this is this is a truth that not even Alexander the Great can speak right because he's been captured by all these things he's been captured by power he's been captured by money you know he's subject to it whereas diogenes is not oh that's beautiful i love that and yeah like you said like these very silly scenes have all that are just laden with this deep messaging and transmission and the one that came to mind, because you're right, there are so many stories. And I remembered one and I was like, let me see if I can find it. But the short version is right here on Wikipedia. But like, there was one where Plato was apparently, and that might have been more tongue in cheek, was like, they were talking about what's a man? What's a human? Right. And he, he, caught, he referred to them as a fe- like featherless bipeds, right? Featherless bipeds. And so Diogenes, he went and plucked a chicken. Just plucked all the feathers off the chicken and then brought it into the academy, into the room, and said, Here is Plato's man. And like that kind of stuff is a great way to break it up, where it's like you get real stuffy philosophical conversations about all this sort of abstract stuff. And, this, and then here comes the man with a with a literal chicken with all the feathers plucked, saying, Here's the man. Like really bringing a whole different dimension into the conversation that wasn't there before. Hmm. and if i if i remember correctly he did it in front of his entire all of his uh students and everything too (laughs) you know really really made an ass out of himself in front of everyone you know um yes but but this actually it um it's interesting that you referenced that story in particular because um i'm as i as i stated before i'm i'm currently reading um, Becoming Animal is the name of the book. Um, mm. But uh, as as I told you before we started recording, um, these first two chapters, I'm I'm only like 15 minutes in, and certain concepts have already bowled me over, you know, completely. Um, and the uh, the author kind of offhand remarks, um, he doesn't even really expand on it, you know. He so this is this is my interpretation of his words, but uh, nevertheless, um, he mentions the cult of expertise. Right. Mm. Um, 
and and I, I find this so illuminating kind of in our conversation that we're having um, in regards to the archetype of the fool, Diogenes, all of these different kind of concepts swirling around where the cult of expertise to me speaks to within animism, this sort of desire for direct unmediated experience versus deference to the quote experts. Right. Mm. And I, I think, I, I think that that in particular has a lot of power in occult spaces. You know, the, the point isn't that, you know, experts are worthless. It's just that, um, you know, we, we shouldn't form cults around them. And um, in some occult spaces, it, it almost feels like the point has become to talk about the thing rather than doing the thing. Right. Um, and this, and this is formed around, you know, cadres of um, experts. Um, and in this way, you know, the fool, the clown, Diogenes, um, you know, all of these people are engaging in this direct experience, um, sort of a lot of the times directly at odds with the, quote, experts, right? And just making fools out of them the entire time. Mm-hmm. Yes. And the power of that. And I just want to, like, underline. I'm just look, sitting with it. I can see how I can. First of all, I can almost feel the uh, the way this book is moving in you. And that's so exciting. Like, when you come across things like that, that just, yeah, I just, I just really uh, loving the energy. And I'm really appreciative of it. Um, I know that feeling is so good. But, like, this phrase that, that you said, I just want to, like, underline it for some reason. This direct unmediated experience that you mentioned and and the importance of having these ways into it and like yeah just like thinking about that idea with this particular archetype as you're pointing to is is yeah we can get really lost in abstractions and concepts and and all the contradictions and there's something about this clown, the fool, that can really bring us into sort of direct experience with with paradox, too, I think, is what the word is coming up for me. And, like, speaking of, like, paradox in this particular uh, context, like, I'm thinking about, like, even the power of, like, a comedian, like, a really good comedian, which I think is similarly in this archetypal umbrella. And, like, you know, these are these are shapes and forms and archetypes and moves that are really, like, they're all playing in a similar you know arena but the comedian like you think of someone like george carlin you know who um who really spoke about horrible truths about the nature of society you have this ability where carlin would could bring us into a place where we could almost have this unmediated direct experience with all this bullshit in our society but like come out of it feeling better like laughing at it and finding some healing in just calling out the bullshit and like instead of like being this this these hard truths that we tend to avoid or numb from instead he's like almost a good comedian like him is almost like inviting us into the silliness of all the paradox and all the hypocrisy of human behavior and allowing us to sort of mock it while also maybe finding our way around not duplicating it or thinking of new ways or seeing the world differently. <laughs> this is a great meme. Uh, that's funny. This, this meme has a picture on the top. It's like 
uh, different generations feeding. And so you've got like the great grandpa who's labeled Socrates feeding the grandpa who's labeled Plato, who's feeding the son, is labeled Aristotle, who's feeding the uh, little baby, who's labeled Alexander the Great. And so you have this beautiful like sort of lineage happening. And then the bottom you have Diogenes uh, lighting a Molotov cocktail. And it's like all of those players are playing unique, important roles, right? We need all those. We need all those people to get the sort of uh, what was coming out of that time period in Greek thought. You need all those different perspectives, including the Molotov cocktail <laughs> coming from the outside. <laughs> That's awesome. Hmm. Yeah, I'm wondering if any other moves, like archetypal moves and movements are coming up for people as we think about this, or if there's more on the clown piece. Like, I don't want to lose sight of that that piece if there's more to, to chew over there. But I want to just check in with you all. I'm going to sit for a second, too, and see what... Wow. Hmm. It's funny too because I feel like <laughs> there's another meme here. <laughs> yeah. Hi, get out of my sunlight, says Alexander. I mean, says the um, Diogenes. No, hi, says Alexander. Get out of my sunlight, says Diogenes. If I wasn't Alexander, I'd wish to be Diogenes. Diogenes says, if I wasn't Diogenes, I'd wish to be Diogenes too. <laughs> you know, I can't help but like, just like, personalize it for one second. I feel like the, the clown or the jokes, the Joker or the comedian or you know all these different things. This move, humor, we'll just call. I'll just shorthand it. Was one of the earliest moves I feel like I learned in school, where there were many times where I felt like an outsider, where I felt like I didn't really, I don't know, like I wasn't able to keep up with some of the other kids, or like I had a real strong naivete, so like. I was super gullible and like I had these twins that lived across the street from me. They would, they would always trick me always. Right. Speaking of tricks, right. So that's that one angle of the trickster always messing with me uh, as someone that was super naive. But over time I did learn how there's a power in flipping that script and finding ways to make fun of yourself and play the fool kind of on purpose, as well as really use levity and humor to allow a different kind of movement and play to come forward. Um, and I feel like that was like one of the earliest things I learned that really helped me navigate a very self-conscious, shy, um, you know, a bit um, sensitive uh, mode of being. And so it's one that I've, I'm very, very fond of. Very one I'm very fond of personally. Any other moves that, that come up for people or archetypal moves that have been showing up in their, in their field or that seem to be really resonant with them? For some reason, what's come up for me too is like to make that even narrower is because both of you mentioned some really cool 
So like Lexi mentioned some really cool work that she's been doing and especially like around dismemberment. Um, and, and I know you mentioned, and I, what's the best way to call you by the way? Cause I'm like, I'm going to call you psychonaut, but I don't know if that's, if that's your preferred, what's your preferred uh, way to be uh, named? <laughs> that, that, that's good. <laughs> psychonaut works. Yes. All right, cool. And like psychonaut, like you're talking about like, this amazing book you're reading right now on animism and for both of you like i'm thinking of like what are some of the integration moves that you guys like archetypally or just even in general um when you're working on really you're doing the work but you're working on that integration work and i think i mentioned a couple that came up in my field this week which is like this archetypal move of weaving Right, it's like bringing together different threads and and turning it into some a fabric, um, and then also this archetypal like bridging, like thinking how do I bridge these two these two things that might seem like there there's a a gap or a separation between them. I'm wondering if anything is coming up for you all. It's a tough question. It it's making me think too. I shared um, you know, I don't know why I'm thinking. I think I'm thinking of integration too because I had shared a a meme I had seen earlier today on social media, which really made me laugh. Which was like uh um. The gift, the, the 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 image was from the very famous business card scene in American Beauty. For those, I mean, not American Beauty, sorry, American Psycho. Um, for those that are familiar with that, where they're uh, showing each other business cards, and there's really like this heightened sense of uh, of um, what makes a good business card in a really cheeky, silly way, make, mocking this very particular type of Wall Street archetype. Um, and it has Patrick Bateman saying, you know, hmm, you've got a lot of knowledge about spirituality. Impressive. Very nice. Now let's see how you apply all that knowledge in your private life. And I think about that a lot with regards to integration. Like, how do I make this jump from like, wow, these are really incredibly alive concepts and history or mythos or... um anything you know scientific fact and knowledge how might this change the way that i move in my own world or how might this affect my private life or as i was mentioning earlier like my psychic landscape um whatever that might look like one of the moves that i've done in this space is sometimes i like to come up with stories or characters around these things. Um, and they don't always pan out into like finished products. And that used to give me a lot of uh, frustration. But nowadays I just see it as more like, well, maybe it'll come together one day. But if not, that was really useful. Like as an example, there was this, um, I think I mentioned, I might have made a thread even under Archetypal Hour in, uh, in the pot. But it was like... Um, the chariot metaphor from the Upanishads where it was really speaking to this metaphor of the chariot where you've got the horses 
as like um, basically the senses, right? The difference. So there's five horses, the chariot's being pulled by five horses, the five senses. And um, attached to the horses is the reins, and the reins are the mind, right? The, or the, what they use in the Vedic literature, they call the manas. And then who's holding the reins is the charioteer, which in this sort of metaphor stands for the intellect. And what they're riding is the chariot, right? Which in this metaphor would be the body, uh, the human being. And, but there's also the lord of the chariot. So the one who's sort of like riding in the chariot, the one who's, um, I guess, in this sort of metaphorical standpoint, is the one who's leading where this chariot's going. And in this version, in the Upanishads, they're talking about the Atman, right? The, that soul, that aspect, that deepest aspect itself, which is essentially in that tradition akin to Brahman, akin to everything, the thing that makes up everything. Anyway, I loved that that whole metaphor, that whole concept was so beautiful. But like to take it one step further, and this was just, it was not a conscious decision. This was more like it came out and I'm sort of retroactively seeing some intentionality or something like, oh, there's some integration that was happening there. I was not aware that's what I was doing, to be perfectly honest. But I ended up working on, I still am playing with a story where I was actually like creating characters around an actual chariot. Only because I'm American, I put it in an American context. So it was like a, like a, a stagecoach. Um, and I was really playing with this idea of these different characters and these horses and this sort of what it would look like to sort of take this metaphor through its paces into different situations with the stagecoach. And it was really useful. And I still come back to it. It's still a really useful way for me to like play with these different themes and topics and ways of seeing my own self and what kind of steers my chariot or what sort of uh, is, is attracting my attention and the, the sort of the intellect's ability to steer the stagecoach and bring in the senses. Uh, and it was really helpful to me. It was really helpful to me. Yeah, it was, it was interesting. I wasn't really picking up anything until you started talking about writing stories because um, I've been working on, um, I, I think for probably the last, last uh, half year, I've been working on fiction writing as opposed to nonfiction, which I've uh, probably written for the last 10 years now, you know? And it was only it was only in that time that I realized that fiction is actually more important <laughs> than nonfiction, that <laughs> it is indeed fiction that is far more transformative. Um, and um, when I was looking into this, doing this research on the gesture, um, I actually wrote an outline for uh, a short a short story about um, a man who sort of stumbles his way into a court as the court occultist, right? Um, with no magical training or anything, just just some coincidence or happenstance occurs, and the king, this bumbling king, thinks that he's this powerful magician, right? And the jester is the only one that notices, you know, this. So um, these two fools, you know, must work together in order to present this as um this ruse right lest they both lose their heads um from this bumbling king um but again it's it's it touches on that um the you know the jester being kind of the smartest person in the room um and uh not losing their head because they're willing to present themselves as the most foolish or stupid person in the room
right? But in that, there's power. Wow. First of all, that sounds amazing. And I, uh, I think I was throwing a lot of affirmation in the chat, but like, I love how you were pointing to like, I think fiction might be far more transformative. I, I'm paraphrasing or that's close to what you said, I think. And wow, that aligns so much for me. I completely agree with you. Um, and I love the story that you're telling. And yeah, I'm curious, like what, what you feel like, I, 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 I'd love to hear more too, but I just want to point one thing out and reflect and, and get, maybe get your thoughts on it. But like, I think it's so funny. One of the things that's so funny about story and language and words is this interplay between literal and figurative. And I think it's so fun to play with words. And that's why I think fiction is so powerful because you can really, you know, use the euphemisms and double entendres and all these things that can really work on, fiction works on so many levels. Whereas if you're trying to explain a concept, you're just really speaking at, at one level maybe, whereas a story can just like, speak with uh, like 12 15 different messages to you at one time with one dialogue and maybe all the juiciest stuff ain't ain't even at all close to being explicit right but the 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 fact that this that so much of the story that you're describing at least so far is about like them trying to save their head and yet the way they save their head is to be a fool so it's like this idea of like they save their head by not saving their face in the metaphorical way, right? Like, like if you think of the head as the ego and you're trying to preserve, like is the sort of the way you survive your physical head is to, um, is to sacrifice your metaphysical head, your ego. At least that's what's coming up for me, the way you're describing it. And like, there's some powerful, fun stuff that's built into that messaging and maybe that's just one layer maybe that's not even a layer that you were thinking of or meant to but i want to just reflect that back to you like there's so much beauty and juiciness in that and not not to mention the drudgery of writing nonfiction is so much higher than fiction you know yes Fiction yes. is really this free-flowing sort of, like, process, whereas, you know, the nonfiction that I write on Celtic or Germanic, you know, history and all this, I'm digging through, you know, all these dead Romans and, you know, trying to parse through what's real and what's this imagined, you know, Roman nonsense and mm. all of this. It's just, oh, it's something else. Um, but, yeah. Um, I I I think I think I think that that your analysis of these of these archetypes is is correct and um in the sacrifice of the ego you know you find you find you know a greater self right or or the will or the true will or you know um the path or you know what whatever one uh wishes to call it um mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And the, I, or, uh, or grace, rather. You know, as, as we were speaking the other day about grace, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. I love that. Oh, wow. And... <laughs> And like the other thing too, that when you were describing like the drudgery of nonfiction, 
and the more fun of fiction. I wanted to bring this other element, which I feel like is really related, actually, to this archetypal move and these archetypes we're talking about with Clown Jester, which is the element of surprise. Like, so much humor, so much of what makes clowns funny is that they do things in unexpected ways. They surprise. And I think, similarly, what's so fun about fiction and letting yourself go into that imaginal world Whereas with nonfiction, there's all this conscious, willful effort to bring these, like you said, to get the facts as straight as you can, to really do the intellectual rigor to make sure that you're, you know, communicating things that are as true or as at least sort of given its proper context for the reader, right? Whereas with fiction, it's a little different. And you can enter this like really relaxed, playful state where you kind of go in and like, I, I don't know if you've had this, this before, but you probably have with fiction, like, you start laughing because the character starts doing something that you weren't expecting. And you're like, what? The character did what? Or like, oh, that's how that went down? Like, you're the one who's coming up with the story in quotes, and yet you're surprised every turn. And this has a lot to do with, I think, probably the animism that you're talking about, too, and that where ideas come from. <laughs> These are not things, I don't think, that are just sort of arising. They're arising. There's, sort of, there's a lot of things at play, so I'm going to let that slide for a second. Although, if anyone wants to jump in on that, please do. But I, just, I think there's something fun about being in that imaginal space and letting yourself be surprised by what these characters are doing in your own psychic landscape and allowing that to happen in an organic way. Like, listen, like you said, like a story, it's like you're just kind of following me. You come up with these characters, you come up with these situations, and then you just let them happen. And you're like, you follow the characters as they go along. And you're like, I didn't expect it to go this way. But wow, I'm really glad I, I followed along. I, I actually just had that experience the other day because I started a revision on some writing that I had. And I was I, I was laughing. I was in suspense. I was I don't remember <laughs> writing this, you know. The characters are acting of their own volition yes. um within the archetypal frameworks that I've erected around them. Um and and that that is the free flowing, right? You've created, you know, these people um or what have you and um they are acting of, of their own will um and uh, I, I i thought of something actually interesting an interesting connection with all of this um the idea that fiction is more important than um non-fiction actually came to me through um an individual by the name of slavoj zizek um, and I, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the individual, but he is very much mm -hmm. so the clown, you know, um, this is a man who's, who's being interviewed for like an important documentary and he appears with no shirt on and a blanket over his lap, assumably no pants on either. And this is how he conducts this interview. <laughs> yet he's this serious academic who's saying, you know, important weighty things. Or when he has his, um, you know, debates with Jordan Peterson that's televised all over the world. You know, he just refuses to debate Jordan Peterson and instead meets him where he is at, Jordan Peterson, and uh -huh. uh, engages with him on that level. And Jordan Peterson has no idea what to do. You know, he's used to this formalized debate style. And, and Jordan Pe uh, and uh, Zizek takes the gun completely out of his hand and engages with him directly rather than this prepared material and this back and forth 
debate. You know, it looks a lot more like two uh, buddies getting a beer, you know, at a bar or something, mm-hmm. something like that. And 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 he layers this all with comedy and humor and everything, mm. um, so that real progress can actually be made, rather than just two grumpy old men fighting with each other, right in front of the world. Yeah, you know? yeah, in like an intellectual arms race, like is often the case. Like... Absolutely. <laughs> yep. Wow, that's awesome. And I, I, um, I I'm not like super duper well versed with Zizek, but I've definitely like seen lots of videos with him before especially in the past um and uh it's funny you mentioned him too because like you said that style is really like he has this like really playfulness and like you like you said subverting expectations and this unseriousness that he brings to things but he's speaking really passionately and seriously at the same time right um this paradox that he's holding and i also think it's funny because you mentioned like fiction too and the importance of the fiction, and you said Zizak, Zizak brought that to you. And um, you're right because he does a lot of the talks that I remember him from. He'll like be like explaining like you know dialectical Marxism through the lens of Kung, Kung Fu Panda, you know. And like, there's some power in that. Like, let's talk about you know materialist dialectics, but from uh, anthropomorphized panda voiced by Jack Black. And I'm going to be really serious about all the plot points in kung fu panda to break down what i'm talking about here and like that's really cool because fiction really can give us powerful ways of communicating messages that cold academic intellectual discourse could never could never Mm. the cult of expertise if you will right (laughs) thank you to bring it back full circle to what you said earlier the cult of expertise whoo Ooh. we're cooking today <laughs> for real though for real though and i think actually wow something about the way that this conversation has unfolded also does make me think about the way that this move that we're talking about and kind of gesturing at from different angles is so like bound up with a lot of what i would call like internet culture and a lot of like how Gen Z sense of humor has found its expression, at least in some of the things that I've seen online. I don't know if that sounds resonant with you, with you, you Lexi or Psychonaut, but like that's what's coming up for me. Like I feel like this is sort of actually speaking to a move that a lot of people are employing on the internet. Hmm especially in the absurdism and sort of extract yes extractism of you know these um uh, surreal means right that's, that's yes and and you and and you look at them and if you're not of a particular generation um it's just like i i have no idea what i'm looking at what, what does any of this mean and um if you are of that generation it's it's a perfect translation to the experiences that you've had and are currently having uh, almost as if it were a different language altogether. Yes. And like, you know, right now, right. They're teaching, like, if you're in America, they're like, yeah, you should be learning Spanish or maybe learning Chinese. And those, that's true geopolitically and business wise. Yeah. And you know, in our culture wise, yes. But like what you're saying is like, it's also important for us to speak the language of absurdity because 
well, look at things. You know, look at our situation, especially in America. Look at our political situation. It's Look at shows like Veep, which is this beautiful satire, which at a certain point almost couldn't keep up with the satire of real life in that particular dimension. And you're so right. Like, there's something... And it can be it can be probably dangerous too. I think a certain level of obscurity and surreal also be very escapist, which sometimes we need, right? Is to cope. But there is something powerful about being able to look at things from that lens of absurdity and like actually be able to feel comfortable in it. And it's interesting too because it gets it, that that absurdism becomes dangerous in the context of the message being lost on the audience. Mm-hmm. And there are many pieces of um, media, um, such as, um, you know, Fight Club, um, where, uh, individuals will identify with the bad guy and mistake them for the good guy. Yeah. Tether Durden or an American Psycho, the the main character, I, I forget his name, but there's an identification with this individual and it's like, okay, hold on. You understand he's the bad guy, right? <laughs> yeah. And that, but that's totally lost on this other audience that identifies with the subject of critique. Mm. It's funny too because I mentioned Patrick Bateman and like Christian Bale has said like I think that's one of the funniest movies ever made. But he's like I've also met people who think Patrick Bateman's like someone to emulate. He's like that's terrifying, and it is. <laughs> it and now now I'm thinking back to where this all started. And the beauty and the power of the clown who is wearing clown makeup, who's wearing a shiny red nose and a rainbow wig and is getting and has ridiculous shoes on. Like there ain't no confusing who's the butt of the joke with the clown. Whereas with modern cinema, yeah, with some of the other archetypes, they don't have that element of like, hey, I'm being clear in my dress, in my costuming that who I am and what I'm bringing. And there's something powerful about the clown wearing the outfit. Yeah, as as the clown dons the appearance of being lesser, or Diogenes living in a bed, mm. you know, being homeless. This allows a certain level of vulnerability on the level of the target of the critique, um, in order to um, accept that critique with levity. Um, due to um, the the self degradation or whatever mm. of, of, the, of the clown in the first place, you know, so people don't feel put down by by the critique that's being leveled. Um, yes, yes, and and I, I'm I'm thinking about this, and you know, it's if if Diogenes, you know, had a home and wealth and all of these things, you know, Alexander would have probably cut his head off, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, because he he wouldn't have been able to accept that criticism, um, um, if 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 he was a, a man of any you know quote status within society. Yes, and it it also like it points me back to like, not to like because like yeah he was doing it in a very purposeful way, but think about all the 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 people that we dismiss as fools in real life that actually have more wisdom than we are giving them credit for. They have more openness and invitations for us to humility. 
to seeing things differently that we don't always take because I don't know, lots of reasons probably, but I just, that that's really sitting with me too, where like, you're so right. That sort of power dynamic, that power gap, the status gap is part of where this ability comes from. Wow. I'm just sitting with this, I'm trying to bring it together in my mind, but thank you. Whew. And we, we think about it too, in terms of like wealth, you know, and extensively. Mm-hmm. What is wealth supposed to bring us? Wealth is supposed to bring us more freedom to live as we desire. However, we see in this example within this archetype that the exact opposite. Yes. 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 Again, the paradox. You're so right. That is exactly what we're seeing. That is, no, the thing that everyone assumes is correct might actually be incorrect. That may, yeah, to a certain point, wealth does bring liberation to a certain level, but then it gets to another level where you're suddenly not as free as the person living on the street. And, and then it gets to another level where you have been consumed and are totally subject to rather than master of. Yes. Yes. And that's the thing too, like, you know, especially with the, that more of that like trickster outsider kind of role of like the one who's not subject to the norms of that society or that culture there's a freedom there to explore and do things totally differently that others don't even know sometimes is possible because they're so locked in to that that sort of hive mind of the norms and again that's not necessarily a bad thing but it's just it's a thing right and without these people in these specific specific roles or just embodying this specific energy, whether it's an intentional function or just sort of like a karmic function or an unconscious function, regardless, it's such an important function for the vitality of the whole, for the whole organism. And, and it, it gets a little frustrating talking about these things because it's not like anything that we're saying is particularly revelatory in terms of the, this, this presentation. You know, if you look mm. at um, the Bible, for example, you know, one cannot yeah. serve two masters, right? Yeah. And, 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 and we have this depiction of, um, oh, you know, I, I, I understand now that that wealth was the master of these people, not, you know, not subject to, you know, the, 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 the um, commodity owns the person, right? Um, where the wealth owns the person. Yes. It's, it, these ideas are very old. <laughs> oh, yeah. They're, they're ancient. They're ancient. But, and... but when, you, when you speak to, um, you know, like a wealthy Christian, for, for yeah. example, you know, they, there's, there's a blockage you can't get through. Um, and perhaps it is the clown. You know, um, perhaps in in poverty, we can see a little bit of the archetype of the fool within Jesus as well. Um, Yes. um, You know, um, try to transcend that. Yes. Yeah. And I think it's funny when you mentioned that I was trying to like just kind of pull up what might come up for me, like thinking of Jesus in playing this archetype and i feel like he does in different ways you're right like especially with like some of the more inflammatory language or or very 
what I would see as like metaphorical language that really tripped people up. You know, when he was talking about like consume of my flesh, right? Those kinds of things. People were like, what the hell did you say? Right? Or, um, uh, yeah, like being born again, right? Where like I think Nicodemus at one point is like, how could that, like what? You're going to come out of someone's womb again? Like using language, but but like using it in a way where like he doesn't really say like, oh, it's only a metaphor. Like he kind of, I feel like a lot of those times he sticks with that purposefully to push people purposely to bring about a unique kind of friction that can only come when you're saying things that are just so outside of the current thinking. You know, especially when we, when we talk about things like, um, you know, the, the foot washing story, right? Oh yes. Right. We can, we can see um, Jesus um, lowering himself um in the eyes of society right of course you know now within the modern day there there are many of us who just oh he's just washing somebody's feet you know what and and the gravity of that shouldn't be lost in that story that this was this was a massive undertaking in, in a way that allowed jesus to sort of lower himself um, kind of in the yes or the fool or etc or now that we're on this like I'm just feeling like the full wave of this this pattern where it's like, how about just the fact that the Messiah, the Christ, whom according to most traditions all assumed would come and usher in a whole new like kingdom, comes and instead allows himself to be crucified, to be mocked, to be cut up and and killed like this is the the king you know that kind of language like here's the king of the jews right as pontius pilate says up on a cross dying and like yes of course that imagery is extremely violent and like not funny but there is something and i'm sorry and i don't mean any offense but i find there's something quite funny and absurd about that about that paradox of assuming this great force that's going to bring peace into the universe is coming and instead of coming and putting everyone under their will with an iron fist and making the my enemies my footstool lets himself be killed mm. Mm. as paul said fool right foolishness i'm gonna try to find that bible passage real quick <laughs> Mm, but you're so right. Thank you for bringing this up. Wow. Hmm. So I do see we're coming up towards the end of this this time. I want to just maybe we take some time to just think about what takeaways or what things that we're pulling out of this. Um, but I've really enjoyed this conversation so far. Thank you, Lexi. Thank you, Psychonaut. Thank you, Clown. Thank you, Jester. Right? I'm going to thank the archetypes that have been alive, too. Anything else that's, that's... I'm trying to think what my takeaways are. I'm going to look for that one more Bible passage while I, while I also think. Hmm.
So for those listening or for those joining us live, yeah, I wonder, uh, I don't know, is anyone feeling any homework? I'm feeling like I, I really want to see how this move shows up, how it can be employed um, in ways that maybe bring me into new understanding, bring me into new wisdom, bring us all into new ways of seeing the world and seeing situations. Um, and also maybe allowing ourselves to uh, more easily suffer that humility, suffer those ego hits, suffer a little bit um, the pain of being foolish and instead allowing ourselves to sort of be the audience too and having a little chuckle and providing a little grace or being very personal. You know what? Yeah, you're right. Let me put my wig on. Let me put my... Uh, my my red nose on. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That's true. And see if that brings us into uh, more harmony. Mm. Anyone else have any last thoughts or things that they're thinking of? Things they might want to share before we uh, before we close out. Yeah. So. I guess I'll, I'm feeling because we had some uh, some good little gospel piece. Aha! Uh -huh. Thank you. Psychonaut shared a, uh, a, a the word kenosis. So this is a Wikipedia kenosis. I'm just going to read the beginning of it. In Christian theology, kenosis is the self-emptying of Jesus. The word is used in the epistle to the Philippians. Jesus made himself nothing, or he emptied himself. Mm. Thank you. Yes. Yes. And that process of self-emptying can be quite foolish from certain outside perspectives, and certainly from the norms of our society, where everything's about your brand and your self-image and all the things that you got to do in the world, right? And uh, wow. And now I'm feeling, I found the passage. I think maybe this is, so this is from 1 Corinthians, the first chapter. This is Paul speaking. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate, which is uh, uh, from Isaiah 29. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world for since in the wisdom of god the world through its wisdom did not know him god was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe jews demand signs and greeks look for wisdom but we preach christ crucified a stumbling block to jews and foolishness to gentiles but to those whom god has called both jews and greeks christ the power of god and the wisdom of god for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. And so, yeah, where's the philosopher of the age? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the wise person? Maybe the clown. Maybe the jester. Maybe the one who seems stark raving mad, as they say, on the streets, speaking truth to power. Hmm. Well, I'm really grateful um, for this space. Thank you all for 
joining us today live. Thank you for anyone who's listening to this message. Um, and have a wonderful week. And, you know, clown it up a little bit. All right. See you.